Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. I'm John Bailey. Today we present a special program highlighting a conversation that took place on the Indiana University Bloomington campus last November. As part of NPR's Cities Project, NPR producer Franklin Cater and former New York City urban designer Alex Washburn spoke at IU's School of Public and Environmental Affairs. The two examined how cities around the world are dealing with natural disasters and other challenges presented by climate change. Franklin Cater opened the conversation. Thank you to SPIA for your kind support of the NPR Cities Project. It's really exciting to uh, have a a school that is interested in supporting the kind of reporting that we're doing with this project, and really cool, I think, that that we're uh, finding some common ground in terms of the things that we're interested in here. Um, It's also really great to be back on the campus of a Midwestern Big Ten school. Um, It's I, I really like Bloomington. I've been walking around in the past uh, couple of days and really enjoying myself. Um, and I uh, want to say thanks as well to Alex Washburn for being here. Is this cool or what to have the former urban design chief for New York City here in Bloomington for this presentation? Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, A quick bit of background on the Cities Project for those of you who are not super familiar with it. This is an area of urban issues coverage that I started on All Things Considered, which is our afternoon news program. It airs here on WFIU. And uh, and it shortly after uh, went to an all-network series. So it's now on Morning Edition and on All Things Considered as well. Uh, as Will mentioned, I started the project with the idea that urban issues are really global concerns. And the reason that I say that is when you look around the world, about 54% of the world right now are urban dwellers. We passed that uh, 50% benchmark um, just a couple of years back. And it's growing fast, uh, especially in developing countries. And when you look at the United States, about 80% by the census measurement of people in the United States live in urban areas. So the reason that uh, I think that this is important to explore is because as we're becoming an ur- we are an urban country, we're becoming a, a, an urban globe, this is really the future of the human species, is an urban future. And I think it's important to explore what's coming next. You can take a look at this map uh, just briefly, and this is from the U.S. Census, and you can see where it's darker, that's, that's where these are, the, each one of these colors is a county, where it's lighter, that's a very rural county, no urban population at all. But you can see that the majority of the United States has a significant urban population. What we're going to do today is we're going to use Cities Project reporting from the past few weeks to talk about urban resilience. And I'll play some clips of NPR NPR stories, uh, and then we'll turn to Alex, hear his take on these important topics, and we want to hear from all of you as well. By the way, are, are some of you here at SPIA studying resilience? Has this come up in your conversations in classes? I'm curious. So, so a little bit here in Bloomington? Okay, well, 
So some of you know the word resilience has really become a buzzword among city officials, urban planners, and designers these days. Uh, some people are calling this the new sustainability. And what they mean by that is that it doesn't really matter whether human beings are causing climate change or not. What matters is the fact that climate change is happening, the globe is getting warmer, and when you look around, you can see symptoms of that. You can see a lot more flooding in some places, for example. We're going to hear some of the, the kinds of symptoms in the stories that are coming up. And so the point is not just to mitigate climate change. The point is to adapt to it. That's what the resilience backers say. And we've started covering this idea as an urban issue uh, in the first season of the Cities Project, just before Hurricane Sandy hit, which was back in 2012. And then when the hurricane hit, the superstorm, uh, it really became a huge issue, on the East Coast at least. And uh, Alex, this is a discussion that's really taken over your life at this point. Resilience is really what you're about teaching. Your book is about it. And I just want to ask you what it was like uh, when you were the urban design chief of New York City and Superstorm Standy came up the East Coast. Wow, well, that's a very good question. I, I I'm before you today, and first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's really wonderful to come to Indiana, to come to Bloomington, to be here at, at this school um, whose mission is change for the good. I really appreciate that. I think that's the, uh, an urban designer, you know, which I am. Um, you know, all we do is change cities and hopefully change them for the better. If you like the status quo, then you're not an urban designer. And I get a sense from being here and sort of hearing conversations and seeing you and faces that, that you all want to change things. And I hope that change will be for the better. And maybe our discussion today is going to give you a sense of some of the challenges that are facing us. Me personally, I have the challenge of flooding, of storm surge. I live in Red Hook, Brooklyn, which is a beautiful neighborhood where they used to build ships right on the water. Um, it's a wonderful neighborhood of artists and people who make things. But we were in the direct path of Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And, um, you know, I remember about uh, the week before, it was late October. So I thought the hurricane season was over. Actually, I um, had even gone so far as to, like, cancel the insurance on my motorcycle and take off the license plate and wrap it up and put it in front of my house because um, I thought we were done. And then when I first heard the storm was coming and then they were starting to call it Frankenstorm, and I thought, ah, this is, just, this is just silly. But then the probabilities kept closing down on New York, and I kind of realized, oh, my God, this is going to hit us. So I sent my family up to higher ground, but I decided to stay. I, I defied the mayor's evacuation order. And I worked for the mayor, so I didn't do this, this lightly. But, but at heart, I'm an architect, and I, f I design things. And I feel you can't design for something you haven't experienced. So I wanted to feel what it felt like to be, to be hit by a storm surge. Was it going to be like a tsunami, or was it going to be like a bathtub filling? And the answer I found out on that night was something in between. And, you know... The morning, it's Superstorm Sandy, there were 
bunch of different factors that all had to happen together, including high tides, including directions of winds, all sorts of hydrodynamic and meteorological things. But the point is that about on 7 o'clock on the evening of October 29th, the storm hit us at the point that the tide was highest in Red Hook. And the first hint, I was looking at the gutter out in the street, and water started coming out of the gutter. And then it started coming faster. And there wasn't much rain. You know, Hurricane Sandy was not a particularly big rain event. It was a very huge sustained wind. And what was happening is that that wind was pushing a wall of water in front of it. And as it came into New York through the Verrazzano Bridge and into Upper New York Harbor and towards my house, it was fast and kind of purposeful. You know, it's just a different scale from stuff that we as people are kind of, kind of used to. You know, it's, it's just so much bigger than we are. And the water started coming out, and it did not stop. It just rose. Somebody had left their car stupidly in the street, just wheel well, door, windshield. And it was coming fast enough that if you didn't know what to do, you would be lost. It was not a time for decision-making. Okay, I stayed in my house. I knew it was not the time to try to get out and go anywhere. Just go upstairs and hunker down. I get the same feeling one time when I went to Seattle and I looked down the street and there was a volcano. You know, what's the, the mountain in Seattle that you can see? It's just so much larger of a force than we are. So staying there and experiencing that was important. But you know what? It was not as important as experiencing the next few days. Because that's when we had to recover. And something that I found out, and that's, that's the most important part of the resilience, it wasn't anything, any government program or any kind of architectural safety thing. It was volunteers who came from all over New York, even somebody who came from London, came to my neighborhood, to my house. They put on rubber gloves and giant boots and masks. Because, you know, when you get flooded, it's like, it, it, it's, not, it's not fresh water. This is the sewers overflowing and coming back into your house. But they put on these rubber gloves and helped me. And they didn't even want thanks. It, it's a mark of social cohesion. And just remember, in all the stuff we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about a lot of technical stuff, a lot of governmental stuff, but ultimately that is the most important thing for a city's resilience is how much people care about each other. Well, let's talk about some of the relevant factors in the resilience of a city. Uh, here are three of them. First of all, location, design, and mobility. And we'll tackle location first. Location is always key, right? I mean, you've heard the old real estate adage, the three most important factors in real estate are location, location, and location. And usually we're talking about the value of a property when we're talking when we when we say that. But it also makes a lot of sense to say that about your relationship to your neighbors, to your community, to the natural environment. And are you in a fire prone area, for example? Are you in a flood prone area? And so on. 
Well, here's a community that is currently rethinking its location. This is Staten Island, just down from where Alex lives, part of New York City. And if you were following the news a couple of years back, you probably heard how hard the coastal part, the Atlantic coastal part of Staten Island, where that circle is, was absolutely just slammed by the hurricane. And here is what's happening these days with hundreds of homes in Staten Island and Long Island and places like it. They are tearing these houses down. And they're using federal money to buy out the homeowners and tearing not only a house down, but they're tearing the whole neighborhood down, hundreds of homes at a time. And the idea is to let nature come back, provide a buffer for areas that are further away from the water. And I always think this, this is a sort of a strangely fascinating video to watch, a, watch the process of a house come down. But the way that, that the uh, governor of New York is justifying this is he's saying there are some parcels that Mother Nature owns. She may only visit once every few years, but she owns the parcel. And his point is basically we need to let some areas just go back to nature. Uh, this, um, this approach has been widely embraced in Staten Island especially because they got hit so hard there and people have been only too happy to give up their homes. So I sent a reporter named Matthew Sherman from WNYC, which is our New York member station in New York City, and I sent him out to Staten Island to see what was happening. So let's hear a little bit of his report. The latest to go, as you can hear behind me, is number 16 Kissam Avenue. Bill Bai used to live there. It's a strong roof. It was a strong roof, I should say. After Hurricane Sandy hit in 2012, Bai and other homeowners decided their neighborhood was dangerous in terms of natural disasters and increasingly expensive. The insurance would be too high. The property tax, everything would be too high. The backhoe nibbles away at the house bit by bit. Within an hour, the whole thing comes down. The woman who lives next door, Franca Costa, is staying, at least for now. I don't know if they're offering me enough money where I could buy something else for us. I mean, the guy down there moved into a studio. I don't want to do something like that once I've owned a house. Costa is one of only a few holdouts left. It's not just because of Sandy. This is wetlands. It floods in heavy rains and is barely above sea level. In hot weather, wildfires break out. You look at what we're in the midst of right here, you realize houses don't belong here. That's Joe Tyrone. He organized the neighbors and convinced New York State to buy out whoever wanted to sell. It's insane to think that this looked like this 30 or 40 years ago and someone said, oh, I can build some homes here. So that's a big question, right? Should anybody have lived there in the first place? So your location is close to the water. Sea level's rising. Some people have decided to retreat. But Alex, this isn't happening in your neighborhood. Tell us what the difference is and why is it not happening where you live? No, it's not happening in Red Hook. Red Hook is not retreating. Uh, you know, there's a bar on my corner called Fort Defiance. And that bar is named Fort Defiance because at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, a group of American soldiers stayed, stayed put and covered Washington's retreat from Brooklyn. If they had retreated, the army would have been lost. There would have been no revolution. So that's indicative 
of a spirit that is in my neighborhood and I think is in cities in general, which is you are here to stay. You fight for being here. So any talk of retreat goes against the psychological grain of living in a city. That said, now I can put on my professor hat. Right? Obviously, there are certain places where it is not smart to build certain types of houses. And the next book I'm, I'm writing is called The Bible, Buildings in Bad Locations. Right? So now those little houses that we saw on Staten Island, th- those are cottages. Some of them are bungalows. We have that typology of house in New York City in the floodplain. We also have skyscrapers in the floodplain in New York. So my, my point is about the, the, just the easy question of retreat and when the guy said, like, you know, no one could build here. No, no one should build small wood frame structures at ground level. But if you're building a denser typology, well, then that can be more resilient. Um, let's look at the other side of the issue, though, for a second. That's a wetland. And where some of those houses were is indeed whether it's the house or the building can survive is secondary to the question of how does that affect the overall hydrology of the region. And putting a house in a stream bed is just plain dumb. Right? You don't want to do that. So you want to think of the nature that's already there and work with it. You know, Governor Cuomo, Cuomo's quote uh, about nature owning the parcel, it's true, although I wonder, you know, governors don't collect property taxes. So uh, the mayor would have asked, okay, if Mother Nature owns it, who do I send the bill to? But, but um, let me look, let's look at it one other way, this question of, of retreat. Anybody here a planner, consider themselves an urban planner? Okay, got one. All right, well, remember, I said I'm, a, I'm an architect and who became an urban designer, but architects typically think in three dimensions. Planners work in plan typically, two dimensions. So retreat very often means something in those two dimensions. It's a horizontal move. So yes, that's a very effective strategy to get your building out of harm's way by moving sideways, moving away. Well, architecturally, though, what if you flip the frame of reference and try to get out of harm's way by moving up? That's also a form of retreat, but it's called building scale retreat. And when you have a dense, already established neighborhood that's been there for 200 years, that's an option you want to look into. You know, that boiler should not be in the basement. It should be upstairs, above the flood line. And there are lots of ways, large and small, that you can retreat vertically while staying put horizontally. So our data reporter, Robert Benincasa at NPR, has been looking at the money spent by FEMA on buyouts because generally buyouts are done with federal money and also, uh, you know, adding in some some, uh, state money or local money. But uh, generally these FEMA buyouts are about 75% federal um, and then a mix of other uh, funding sources. And over the last 10 years, about 417 million federal dollars, just from FEMA alone, HUD also does this, uh, have been spent on more than 7,000 properties nationwide. So you look at this map here, you can see that 
uh, it's not really just a New York coastal phenomenon. This is happening around the country after disasters and actually is happening in, in Indiana. Uh, in 2005, you had uh, the winter storms and flooding that happened here, and so about $2.5 million has been spent on uh, some retreating in Indiana as a result of that. And the terminology is important, actually, because what, what you'll find is that among ecologists, you know, they, they, they tend to call it managed retreat, by which they mean a, a you know, very deliberate process of knocking down and moving back from the water the way that nature actually moves back from the water when it starts to rise. And, but as a political agenda, that's not a very uh, easy thing to sell, managed retreat. Uh, so they've been trying to come up with some other ways of, uh, of talking about it. For example, uh, strategic withdrawal, things like that. Um, enough about retreat. Let's talk about another option. If you're close to the water, you can defend the coastline. Uh, the federal government has pledged nearly a billion dollars in Sandy relief money for options like this, like uh, seawalls and, and the like. And the Department of Her Housing and Urban Development put up the money for winning ideas in a competition. The competition was called Rebuild by Design. Some of you may have heard about it in the news. I went to New Jersey to take a boat tour of an area that was designated for one of these winning projects in the competition Rebuild by Design. And the area is known as the Meadowlands. Any New Jersey folks? Giants fan? Jets fan? Giants. Any Jets fans? Okay. <laughs> no, no Jets fans. <laughs> you know, I always think it's the strangest thing how the Giants and the Jets share a stadium in the Meadowlands. It's in New Jersey. They call themselves the New York Giants. They call themselves the New York Jets. I'm sorry, it's a digression, but it's a strange thing. So many people know the Meadowlands from these two sports teams, right, or from the, the New York Cosmos or something like that, um, because that's where the uh, giant sports complex is. But the Meadowlands is really an 8,000-plus area of wetlands, and it's along the Hackensack River. And as I saw on this boat tour, it's, uh, you know, here's, here's MetLife Stadium, uh, the, a picture that I took from the boat, um, but uh, it's also an area that is very industrial. There's a lot of warehouses and other kinds of industry there. And I took this boat tour with a guy named uh, uh, Francisco Artigas, who is uh, the guy on the right, and uh, another person named Alexander de Hoog, who's on the left. Alexander de Hoog is from MIT, and he's the one who proposed this, along with a team of Dutch designers, uh, the flood defense in the Meadowlands. And uh, Francisco Artigas monitors the water on the Hackensack River and looks at, you know, the, the water quality, essentially. And what they told me is that this is an area that's very accustomed to flooding, and it's accustomed to flooding that creates problems with sewage overflow. And so with apologies for the subject matter, I'd like to play a little bit of my report from the boat tour of the Meadowlands. When Sandy hit here, water spilled into some of these communities like an overflowing toilet. After rain events, all the crap comes down. Literally. Literally. And supermarket carts, mattresses, everything is floating down this river. So the plan, pitched by MIT and a big team of Dutch designers with water management expertise, is to turn the Meadowlands into a gigantic, world-class park. The ambition of the plan is by building a big, floodable landscape reserve to make that into the, the central park for the metro area. The park would be surrounded by miles of berms to keep water out of neighboring towns. 
Now, thanks to the competition, Washington has pledged $150 million towards making that happen. And Alexander DeHogue says the park and new flood protection should anchor a new band of development all around it. Design renderings show a practically glowing green space, ringed by new homes and businesses to take in these stunning views. I'm naive and I'm optimistic, but none of this is revolutionary. It's all perfectly possible. Supporters of the Meadowlands Project are discussing the way forward. Well, I'd like to say that I'm, uh, you know, cautiously optimistic. Mauro Ragusio is mayor of Little Ferry, New Jersey, one of five communities slated to get a protective berm in the pilot project. He says to make this plan a reality and not just a multi-million dollar theoretical exercise involves a lot of red tape. A whole bunch of environmental restrictions, permitting process. And choppy political waters. Negotiations between municipalities, the state and federal governments, not to mention property owners. They want to know, is a berm going to be placed there? Is their property going to be bought? Is it going to be taken? <laughs> you know, these, these are all questions, legitimate questions. So there's a lot of legitimate questions about whether this is going to happen, how it's going to happen. And as uh, those of you who are here in the room, you can see there's that scrolling list of all of the stakeholders actually probably not a complete list of all the stakeholders that are involved in a project like this. Alex, you have had uh, quite a bit of experience navigating not only the development side of the urban design world, but also the, the politics side. Is this, your, what's your reaction to a project like this? Is it something that's going to happen? How easy is it going to be? Well, the answer is it's not going to be easy at all. The answer about will it happen is I hope yes. But I know, let me, t let me tell you a little bit about my background in, in politics. Um, when I got out of architecture school and went back to my hometown of Washington, D.C., I got a job in the very best architecture firm in the country that year, and we got the very best commissions on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, and we won winning the best design awards. But the city itself of Washington, D.C. in 1989 was going to hell. Remember, the mayor was a crack addict. There was unbelievable crime. And I was trying to raise my family in the neighborhood that I had grown up in, on, on Capitol Hill, right in a row house. And there were 23 murders, I think, within about a 10-block radius of my house. And I was thinking, like, what is going on with the architecture? The architecture keeps getting better, and the city keeps getting worse. This isn't right. And I thought maybe government might have a chance of, of solving this. And everybody told me there was only one person in government who cared about architecture, and that was a man named Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And... He was a senior senator from New York, and I bumped into Lee Hamilton, one of your, your faculty here at, at lunch, and he was his colleague on Capitol Hill, and it was wonderful to see that remembrance of him, and he told me a couple stories about, about Pat. Um, but what was unique about Pat is that he was the only senator on Capitol Hill who wanted to have an architect on his personal staff. And my official title was Environment and Public Works Advisor. Um, but in reality, I was getting the seminar from him. He loved architecture, so when he wanted to discuss something we were talking about, he'd say, Alex, come to lunch. And you don't know how much that pissed off all the other aides, you know, who had to wait in line with memos on healthcare and international relations and whatever. But 
he taught me that nothing happens in a city without a combination of politics, finance, and design. So any of these projects that we're looking at to make cities more resilient have to meet those three hurdles simultaneously. And in the case of this resilience project in the Meadowlands, three levels of government simultaneously. The money starts from the feds, gets handed to Governor Christie, who then figures out how to get it to the municipality level. So imagine the difficulty of getting that kind of system to align politically. And then financially, okay, fine, we'll do this and we'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars. But you know, in the scheme of things, that's not enough. Remember how I told you how big that water felt? It's the same feeling with the money it costs to deal with it. There is no city, no country in the world rich enough to pay for resilience out of the public treasury. Even Abu Dhabi couldn't do this. You've got to find a way of using some public money to start the process rolling, but then design the area around it so that private money comes in and builds things that work for a public purpose. So that the houses, when they come in and are built, they provide new jobs, new homes, but also in a way that protects their occupants and perhaps even the larger neighborhood if they're designed in a way to work together from more flooding. This is a subject that I, I, I really like. I, I go a lot into it in my book. And there's an example in New York of a project called the High Line. Have any of you guys heard about the High Line in New York, the park? It's a beautiful park, and it's a long story, so I won't go into it today because it's not really a resilience story. It's just a very beautiful park that transformed an entire neighborhood around it. And what happened is $100 million of public money went into the park, but over $3 billion of private money has come into the neighborhood around, which we designed the rules for in such a way that every new building actually makes the park better. These things called bulk envelopes. The details are in... In the, in the book, but the point is private money came in to do things that help the public. And when you get leverage like that, 100 million to 3 billion, that's 30 to 1. That's better leverage than Lehman Brothers had at their peak. So, yes, I hope the Meadowlands project works, but there's a tremendous amount of policy that has to get straight, tremendous amount of finance, and then finally the design issue. Now, by design, I'm very broad about that. That's engineering, that's science, that's what it looks visually, how it works structurally. So right now, I started this center at the Stevens Institute of Technology called CRUX, Coastal Resilience and Urban Excellence, to help design these projects, but not individually, in the whole. So the way we, we do that, and the reason why Stevens is the right place for that, is that Stevens, the faculty there, knows more about the movement of water in New York Harbor than anybody else. We have over 200 sensors in the harbor. And do you know when that, that airplane lost its engines and had to make a... Well, it had to make... The, the waters of the Hudson move very fast and they actually change directions. So the NYPD, when that plane was going down, didn't call 
the federal government, didn't call NOAA or FEMA, or they called Professor Alan Blumberg at Stevens and asked him to tell him, tell them, where do we put the rescue trucks and where do we put the rescue boats? Because everything was moving. And he has a real-time website that you can, you can check out. It's called NIHOPS that shows, shows these movements. But anyway, that's just background to tell you that water is not just the stuff in between. Water has a life. Water has substance. Water has movement. And every one of these resilience projects, when you put it in, affects somewhere else. You push water away here, it goes there. How do you coordinate all that? How do you design it? in a way that the improvement in the meadowlands is going to be not a detriment somewhere else. It's only a, going to do it a certain number of towns at a time. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's a systems design problem. So to answer that first question of will it happen, okay, <laughs> politics, money, systems design, it's all got to work. And I hope it does, but it's a tall order. Next week on Profiles, we'll hear from Carolyn Jones. Jones is a photographer and filmmaker. Her recent project, The American Nurse Project, is a multimedia exploration of the lives of nurses. Jones interviewed over 100 nurses for the project. These interviews give unique perspectives on some of today's most pervasive issues. Nurses talk about diabetes, obesity, the healthcare system, and death. So you're in the emergency room and two people come in and this guy shot this child and you're assigned to the guy who was the shooter. How do you do that? How do you go try to save his life when this child is over there? I must have asked 90 nurses the same question and they were always like, it doesn't matter. That's someone's child too. Take a look into the lives of these ubiquitous medical workers next week. Join us as Trish Curley hosts Carolyn Jones on Profiles. So if we can design our way out of part of uh, out of a problem created by our location, we've been talking about that. So design is the second factor in the uh, resilience of a city that we're going to talk about today. And I've got a couple of examples. Uh, let's break away from New York for a moment and talk about designing for a really hot place, which is kind of an ironic thing to do given what the weather is outside today. Uh, but uh, is there anybody here from Arizona? Okay, no Arizonans here. But uh, summers in recent years in Phoenix, uh, as people who live there know, have been absolutely blistering. And climate scientists say this is just going to get worse. The number of days over 110, 110 degrees is going to increase. Right now they're averaging about 16 days a year, 110 degrees or more. And that number has been actually quite a bit higher in, in the last couple of years. By uh, the mid-century, it's projected to be something like 53 days a year, over 110 degrees in Phoenix. So what happens if the power goes out in a city like that, where it's completely dependent on air conditioning in most places? Well, I asked a guy named Peter O'Dowd from our station in Phoenix, KJZZ, to go out and report on that. And here's a little bit of his story. Architect John Mounier studies pre-industrial desert cities around the world, and he brings their lessons here to a stop along the light rail near downtown. So the number one thing that these older cities could teach us in a new desert city like Phoenix, what is it? 
Well, I think it's everything to do with managing without having to use a lot of extra energy and power. To do that, Meunier says planners could encourage 10 times as many people to live around this train station. Getting more use out of light rail would take cars and heat off the street. These people would also live in taller buildings. Meunier says desert cities in Yemen, for example, take advantage of tall buildings to shade narrow streets. Meunier says it's the way we've built Phoenix that will make us vulnerable. I'm not arguing that we should all live at a higher density. What I am arguing is that there's a lot to be gained from having more of us live at higher density. All right, so I'm going to leave John Meunier behind and jump on the light rail here. I want to show you how this type of building might actually work. Approaching station. Here we are at Divine Legacy. It's a housing complex that's designed for people with lower incomes, and it's right next to the rail line. Every window is dual-paned, and the building's also super insulated, which means a typical apartment at Divine Legacy is about 40% more energy efficient. Now, if you go through this gate, you'll emerge into a courtyard. Four-story buildings rise up on either side of you. There's shade everywhere, and a breeze moves through. Even on a day when it's 113 degrees in Phoenix, it doesn't really feel like it. 113 degrees? Doesn't feel like it at all. Can you really design a more resilient city with a more dense kind of development and that, that kind of development? Yes, you can. Yes, absolutely yes, you can design it. Can you build it is another question. And, and this just sparked in me a, a thought when looking at that courtyard and thinking how the architect had to negotiate the building code in order to be allowed to put something that close together and the fire ratings and the... Any, are any of you here builders or familiar with the, the permitting and... Yeah? Okay. Good. So everything, everything in a city is regulated to some extent, even, even in Phoenix. Um, it's, uh, it's building code, fire code, plumbing code, electrical code, zoning code, national flood insurance, underwriting criteria. The point is that these are lines of code that say you can do something and you can't do something, and their city's DNA. So when I was in, at the city planning on, under Mayor Bloomberg, we, he gave us a housing task. He said, come up with a new type of apartment for New York that will help fill in the, the gap between being a roommate and having your own normal studio-sized apartment, which was a big, it's like a rung in the ladder was missing. So we were trying to do then a design for something called a micro unit. Um, we realized the very thing, first thing we had to do to design this unit was to find the old laws that prevented us from building it. And we had to go back into the housing code for which there had been a hundred years worth of laws that they never die. Once they're on the books, they stay on. And there was this one law that said, and it must have been from the tenement era, you are not allowed to sleep in your kitchen. <laughs> okay, now maybe that was a logical response to some problem circa 1903. But when you're trying to design a very small unit, what's your kitchen? What's your living room? What's your bedroom? They're all the same thing. And so we had to root that law out 
and get an override for it before the designs we came up could be, could be built for it. So it, it's, a, it's a project, I think, if I call it city DNA repair. It's identifying a policy for today. In that case, it was more housing types. In the resilience issue, it's flood-proof buildings. Or in the Phoenix case, it's buildings that don't need air conditioning to be pleasant. And you've got to find those old pieces of code that keep you from achieving your contemporary goal. It's not the most sexy part of policy work, but it is absolutely important in order to achieve the results that you want to today's problems. So I guess that's a roundabout answer to, to can we build it. The most important thing to design is the policy and the codes behind it if we want to see it happen. Okay, uh, I want to talk just a little bit also about California because as you can see from this drought map, it's a, you know, heat is a problem in Arizona, uh, drought is a problem in Arizona, but if you look at the map, California is really where the biggest drought problem is. Uh, Los Angeles has a very um, sort of uh, uh, very, very, um, this is this is a picture here of the Los Angeles River, and it's totally embedded in concrete at this point. So a lot of it is paved over, is what I'm trying to say. A lot of Los Angeles is really paved over. And I've uh, sent a reporter named Amy Standen out to, to learn how uh, the city of Los Angeles is thinking about dealing with the drought problem, because what happens is with a channelized river and with other kinds of pavement, you don't get the water going down into the ground, into the aquifers like you would normally get. And so they're, they're looking at different ways to do this in L.A. Um, and as Amy learned, um, there's a neighborhood in, uh, whoops, there's a neighborhood in, in L.A. called uh, Elmer Avenue, which is looking at some new options for how to design a neighborhood to deal with that problem. So I want to play a little bit of, this is actually a sneak preview of a report that hasn't come yet on NPR. I'm going to uh, give you just a little bit of her conversation with a woman named Hadley Arnold with the Arid Lands Institute about designing a city as a sponge. We're in the northeast corner of the San Fernando Valley in a middle-income neighborhood in a low-lying area in the watershed that was prone to seasonal flooding. We're in a floodplain, kind of. Yes, yeah, we are. This was a neighborhood that was physically vulnerable to flooding and was targeted to do a suite of small-scale changes to see if stormwater could be handled in a different way here as a kind of prototype for Los Angeles. First of all, you see many of the yards, though not all, the Kentucky bluegrass has been removed. The, this one right next to us. Then we have some diehards right. who are, are definitely hanging on to their green front lawn. But Very if you green, look over right. here, you see the sagey greens of flowering plants and that, some rosemary, and, some and lavender. Rosemary, lavender, exactly. So Elmer Avenue is a super important first step toward building a water smart environment our lawns, our houses, our homes, our streets. I think we're going to see much more dramatic changes in the future. New construction is going to take water into account in the future. And it already is in, uh, you're in the town uh, where, you're, where the Stevens Institute is, uh, 
in, in Hoboken, New Jersey, they're also doing this. So what's interesting to me is in Hoboken, they're con concerned about flash floods going into the storm sewer. In Los Angeles, they're more concerned about trying to capture all the water that they can at this point. But it's really the same problem. It's water. Right? You either have too much of it or you have too little. Every, every city I've been to around the world is somewhere in between, somewhere on that spectrum. We've seen today, I think we've talked about how you can design policy, how you can design financial instruments, how you can design buildings itself to deal with your problems today. I love that example of Elmer Avenue. It's, it's, it's actually kind of beautiful, it's simple, and I love it because it's also an experiment. And I think that's, that's actually makes me think of something federal that I'll talk about in a second. But the underlying issue of water is that it's a resource that we have custody of, we manage for a brief period in its cycle. You know, sometimes I, I, I worry about people who talk about things like, like too much carbon as if the carbon is bad, or water as if the H2O is the precious substance. And look, I mean, there is more H2O on planet Earth than, than any of us know what to do with. It's that it's in different forms at different times. There's, we have custody of the hydrologic cycle from the moment the raindrop leaves the, cl the cloud to the moment the water goes back to the oceans. What we do with it in that period of time is what determines how successful we are at adapting to our particular environment in a city. And cities cannot live without water. Water is absolute number one requirement for a city. Um, we got so successful at this in the 19th century that we stopped thinking about it. Uh, you know, kind of after, after the cholera epidemic in New York was taken care of by building the, the Croton water supply, um, after we got good at pumping water around underground, um, you know what, we're in a university setting, so I can digress, right? I don't have to. <laughs> Go back to 17th and 18th century Rome, which had a water problem. And the old Roman aqueducts from antiquity were long in disrepair. And so rebuilding those, bringing water to the city as it started to grow again, was a huge priority, especially for clean water. But rather than putting a bunch of underground pipes and taps, the Romans celebrated this. You know, the, the, that beautiful piazza where, you know, in La Dolce Vita, that beautiful woman jumps into the fountain. What is that fountain called? That's a... Fountain of Trevi, Trevi Fountain. I'm just bringing that example up to show you how you can celebrate a resource like that. And I like that because it kind of it emphasized to me that people saw that it was how you brought water around that was, was worth putting in public, making it part of the public space, part of the narrative of why you are a great city. Whereas we've kind of just like tried to get the water issue to disappear or in the rivers of Los Angeles to put concrete on the edges of the, of the Los Angeles River. And that, yeah, I think that is going to change now. I think that we are going to come up with new ways of handling either too much or too little water unless this federal thing gets in the way. Let's talk about mobility as one more key to a resilient city. 
in a lot of American cities, a revolution has been taking place over the last few years, uh, and especially in big places like New York City, you can see that uh, uh, transportation is really being approached differently by the city in terms of the planning that goes into it. And so I want to just uh, bring up this example of New York, since Alex was involved with, with planning some of the changes there, or designing some of the changes. Um, and it's really a complicated puzzle. And so here's a story that we ran uh, as part of a Planet Money uh, NPR Cities project sort of collaboration on New York traffic. The interplay of travel and traffic in a city like New York is amazingly complex. Each person's decision is a function not just of the infrastructure and the choices available to him or her at any moment, uh, but other people's decisions. These early horseless carriages are all handmade. Most of them do not have tops or windshields. Well, a hundred years ago, uh, just about everybody in New York City got around by the subway, which was new then, but was uh, very efficient, um, by trolleys, um, and on foot, by walking, and some by bicycle. Um, and the history of the 20th century, uh, in terms of New York City travel, uh, is one in which the automobile crowded out all of those other ways of getting around. Every large city has a problem of unusually heavy traffic during rush hours. There's this uh, funny cultural notion that gained control of our minds for so much of the 20th century, especially the second half, that to be a city uh, and to be New York City, there had to be traffic, there had to be horns honking, there had to be taxis rushing about, and ultimately there had to be gridlock. What we're seeing now in the past 10 years or so is a pushback against the automobile. Uh, and the city of New York and to some extent the state have invested billions and billions in rebuilding the subway system to make it more efficient and reliable. Um, and street space in all of New York City, but especially in the heart of the city in Manhattan, is being repurposed to make it easier for people to bike, uh, and walk and use buses. On a typical weekday, uh, 2.8 million people arrive in the heart of Manhattan using public transportation, mostly the subway. And about 700,000 people arrive in the heart of the city in a private automobile, so that's a four-to-one ratio of transit to private cars. On the same typical day, uh, there are about half a million yellow taxi trips uh, in New York City, most of them in the central business district, and just as many on weekends as on weekdays. Um, and finally, on a typical day, averaging winter and summer, about 180,000 people in New York City are riding a bicycle somewhere. And so I think uh, we are now about a dozen years into the 21st century, 
at the dawn of a new revolution in getting around in New York City that's going to provide more travel options that are going to be safer, efficient, uh, more fun, more urbane, uh, and more reliable. Okay, so Charles Komanoff, who is a guy who takes his bike to work every day, 24 years he's been doing that, says a lot of different ways of getting around is more urbane and more reliable. Uh, Alex, tell us what happened to transportation after Sandy hit, and tell us why being a multimodal city is a better way to go in terms of resilience. Well, after Sandy hit, you know, before Sandy hit, we had to shut down the subway to try to protect it. After Sandy hit, it took a while to get it back up. What worked immediately after Sandy were the ferry boats, New York waterways, um, and the, the water taxi. Uh, also what worked was biking and walking. Um, New Yorkers had other choices. And I, th I think th there's a redundancy that you build into a network that's a necessity for resilience. And, and that's, that's just resilience 101, whether you're building a financial computer system or you're building a city. doesn't matter. You have, to, you have to have alternate pathways, and you can measure your resiliency mathematically by different nodes in a network and how many paths around there are to get to them. Um, interesting, you know, one of the, the biggest problems um, post-Sandy was gasoline delivery. We had almost a couple of moments where we were going to have gas riots, and the police had to be called out to the, the gas stations. Some gas stations had gas but not power, so they couldn't pump it, and some had power but not gas. And then the big pipeline bringing the gasoline wasn't working, so we needed to ship in gasoline. But guess what? There's a law in the books called the Jones Act from the, 19, from the Depression that said that you have to have an American flagged and American staffed ship to transport materials between two American ports. And how many of those ships exist in the modern era? Zero. So it took Congress, I think, 10 days to figure that out, that DNA repair, and to, and to give us a waiver to get the gas flowing again. So not, not, to, not to bash cars, you know, I think cars are part of the transportation system, and I love Uber now. Do any of you guys use Uber? You know, it, it, it gives you one more choice. But I'm also a bicycle commuter. How many of you are bicycle commuters? Great. All right. Well, I, I bicycle commute the, from Brooklyn to New Jersey every day. <laughs> um, uh, it's, a, it's a very scenic ride. But, but I have that choice, and I have a folding bicycle, so sometimes I can bike one place, fold it up, put it in the back of an Uber and go home that way. So cities, as they get, you know, to become better places to live, give you more choices, and transportation choice is chief among them. What happens physically, though, is that, that that set of choices eventually has to get reflected in the physical city itself. Like your, your street here, is this 10th or something? The travel lanes are too wide and the sidewalks are too narrow, given the, the amount of people on them and the amount of cars on, on them that ratio has to change if it's to reflect the way you are living now and if it's to reflect the sorts of choices you have. So it all comes back to public space. And I'm, you know, you'll see if you read anything I write or, or listen to me for more than five minutes, it all comes down to public space. Public space builds public trust. And I go back to Senator Moynihan, and that's, that's where I'm going to finish off. My mentor, 
Pat Moynihan, he wasn't always a fancy U.S. senator. He grew up, actually, the child of a broken home. His mom tended bar in Hell's Kitchen. And they were desperately poor. He would shine shoes on the steps of the New York Public Library. And the New York Public Library is a very stately place. has a stone lion, a beautiful piazza. But he could have a conversation there. The person whose shoes he was signing could be a millionaire. And they could have an intelligent, respectful conversation. And that taught him, that gave him a feeling that public space mattered because it's a place where everybody can be equal for a moment. And you know, something that I see as I travel around the world, that for public space to work, everybody has to be able to go everywhere. That equality to be built means that poor people have to be able to come to rich places, Rich people should feel like they can come to poor places. In places in the developing world, that's a big issue. In Sao Paulo, in Rio, and others. But it's something you can't let go, and that's why I always bring it up. Because if you ever give up on your public space, and if you ever give up on making it better every day, because, you know, that's the same thing in a city. Giving up, accepting the status quo, as opposed to demanding better, that's giving up in urban design terms. So if we want our public space to be better every day, then our city gets better every day. And if there's only one single message I want to leave with you all who I know are going to go out and change things, it's that. So from Senator Moynihan through me to you guys, I hope that message is one that then gets gets in, turns into a new city. So uh, thanks, Alex, for that. And um, I think those who say our cities need to be more resilient are really looking at all of these challenges that we've talked about. They're also saying that this is a century in which we're going to experience all kinds of shocks and stresses in the future, right? All kinds of things from economic problems to, uh, you know, not, not, just, not just climate change, but uh, the threat of cyber attacks, possible terrorist attacks, and so on. And so the theme of resilience, while it's not only the theme, it's not the only theme of the Cities Project, is going to be something that we're going to continue to cover and come back to from time to time throughout our reporting at the Cities Project. And if you want to hear more of the whole stories, you can hear them at npr.org slash nprcities. You can follow the project so you know what's coming up at NPR Cities on Twitter. You can uh, engage in conversation. We want to just say thanks for, for listening to us. You've been listening to a presentation on climate change and urban planning, featuring NPR producer Franklin Cater and former New York City urban designer Alex Washburn. The pair spoke at IU's School of Public and Environmental Affairs as part of NPR's Cities Project, of which SPIA is a prominent sponsor. Join us next week when our featured guest will be photographer Carolyn Jones. For WFIU's Profiles, I'm John Bailey. Oh,